Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced at the University of Minnesota, featuring conversations with prominent scholars, researchers, and others movers and shakers in the social world. Professor Catherine Squires is the first John and Elizabeth Bates Cowles Professor of Journalism, Diversity and Equality at the University of Minnesota. She holds affiliations with the School of Journalism and Mass Communication, African American and African Studies, and Communication Studies. Her specialties include Media Studies, Race politics, gender, and public sphere studies. She is the author of Dispatches from the Color Line, published in 2007, and African Americans and the Media, published in 2009. And today we'll be speaking with Professor Squires about her article in the September 2012 issue of American Quarterly titled Coloring in the Bubble, Perspectives from Black-Oriented Media on the Latest Economic Disaster. Professor Squires, welcome to Office Hours. Thanks. And thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. So I'd like to begin by uh, just asking if you to give us a general sense and give the listeners a sense of what the article published again in American Quarterly is, is about. Well, the article in American Quarterly is an analysis of three publications that are targeted towards African Americans or people of color more generally. And so over the course of US media history we've had a long tradition of people of color creating their own media outlets in order to either compensate for the lack of representation in so-called mainstream media or to actually actively speak against the kinds of representations in that media as well as just to foster community within uh, other other spaces. So that tradition has been an activist tradition or an advocacy tradition. And so I was curious to see how presses that still take on that mantle of being by and for people of color responded to the subprime crisis given that people of color disproportionately suffered from the subprime crisis and that there was a lot of evidence and continues to be more evidence emerging that there was deliberate uh, scamming going on in the banking industry and that people of color were targeted specifically for these junk loans. Mm. So I had done a previous piece looking at mainstream newspapers and editorial coverage of the bubble bursting and the ways in which people of color were uh, scapegoated in a lot of ways and how in a few spaces in editorials people were rebutting that characterization of homeowners of color and so then I wanted to go further and see as I said what the african-american press was doing with this issue in response to this kind of scapegoating and demonization Great. Uh, thank you for that really amazing summary. I, I appreciate it. And um, I could sense sort of, uh, I, may, I may have developed a sense to the answer of my next question based on your summary, but can you give us a sense of what motivated you to write the article? Well, there are lots of problematic um, assumptions being made about who caused the crisis, and they're being made very loudly in mainstream media as well as on the floors of Congress. Uh, and most recently, Marco Rubio, in his response to the State of the Union address, blamed the Community Reinvestment Act for the housing bubble. 
when all of the data shows that it was private lenders that were most responsible, not uh, lenders that were actually in compliance with the Community Reinvestment Act. So this transplantation of the stereotype of undeserving working class or lower class people of color into a banking crisis that, by all studies that I've seen, was caused by these financial derivatives that were allowed through excessive deregulation um, is really appalling to me, especially when the data are so clear about things like the Community Reinvestment Act and when the studies have been so clear and the lawsuits have been so clear that many of these big banks actively um, discriminated against people who were seeking mortgages who were people of color and did not even follow their own rules to verify income and assets when they were selling these loans. So the evidence is so strong that actual racial discrimination was happening on top of the malfeasance of the lending institutions that it made me see how strong these stereotypes of people of color are that they're so easily leveraged to argue against financial reform. So usually we see uh, stereotypes and scapegoating of people of color being used to reinforce draconian uh, crime laws. You know, the stereotype of young black and brown men as inherently criminal is used to justify the stop and frisk laws or used to justify, uh, you know, different kinds of sentencing for people with small drug offenses. But now I was seeing this stereotype of the unworthy uh, working class black or Latino person who was taking advantage of the system uh, to get a home loan in the same ways that the welfare queen uh, stereotype was used to argue against all kinds of support for families with children and, and, and so on and so forth in the welfare uh, reform push in the 80s and the 90s. So these stereotypes are, are becoming attached to arenas that one wouldn't necessarily expect. And they were being used quite skillfully. So to this day, like I said, a senator, a sitting U.S. senator who wants to be president goes ahead and pulls that out of the hat in responding to uh, Obama's State of the Union blaming government regulation for a private banking and deregulation uh, complete meltdown. So that was really my motivation was to look at places where you might find a counter discourse, where you might find people uh, showing the evidence and also speaking to the pain that those communities are, are experiencing and the ways in which racial discrimination, institutional racism, as well as financial malfeasance and deregulation of the neoliberal ilk were, were at the root of this. And so you get this dovetailing of, uh, of racial profiling and neoliberal thought that I found appalling, uh, but uh, not, not necessarily surprising given the way racial discourses uh, metamorphosize over time. Well, yeah, very admirable motivation. We we thank you for writing the piece. And um, I heard you mention 
in your response, kind of using the term neoliberal. And I'm, I'm just interested to get your take on how, with part of your motivation uh, also being around dispelling many of these racial stereotypes and challenging these discriminatory forms of um, these discriminatory actions of many uh, lenders and and private businesses. I'm just curious to get your take on what, how you conceptualize or how you define neoliberal and also uh, the, t- the notion of uh, post-racial. Um, so how would you define those? I saw them mentioned in your article, but to give the listeners a sense of your thought process on that, that would be great. Well, um, my understanding of neoliberal from the economic sense and also the uh, social sense is that neoliberal economists or neoliberal uh, politicians who are enamored of these ideologies and economic programs um, really believe in the primacy of the market to regulate society. Uh, The market being efficient, more efficient than government is usually the next step and that individuals are responsible for maximizing their own benefits within a market system. And the best thing for government to do is just provide the right kind of context for businesses to flourish in the market, and then individuals will organize themselves as necessary. Um, This neoliberal vision is hyper-individualistic, it shuns the commons. Um, it does not uh, have any kind of serious investment in public space, public welfare uh, reforms, or any of those sorts of things. So social safety nets are seen as inefficient and a drag on uh, entrepreneurship, individual initiative, and these sorts of things. So the primacy of the individual and the primacy of the market are the hallmarks of this neoliberal approach. Now, post-racial is a term that I actually explore in a book that I just finished that's coming out from New York University Press next year. Um, And post-racial is a term that really started popping up in the early 2000s to describe the quote-unquote millennial generation that was more multiracial and multicultural than previous U.S. generations and also to describe a new crop of African-American politicians like Cory Booker and Barack Obama who were having a lot of success with white voters. And so this post-racial idea is that we're far enough past the civil rights movement to not have to worry about racial discrimination in any large sense. And we also don't have to think about racial and ethnic identities as major organizers of how people's social and economic and political fortunes are ordered. And so it's, it's, it's the sense that racial or ethnic identity has as much impact on your life as your hair color or your eye color. So it's a new version of that colorblind discourse that really exploded in the 1980s, but it's flavored with this neoliberal sensibility I think, where not only do race and ethnicity not really have a serious impact on your life, but now we're able to choose as individuals how much or how little we want race or ethnicity to mean to us as well as 
to others around us. And we should feel free to experiment with our identity and um, put it on, take it on and off like we would clothing. Mm -hmm. And so this kind of individualized uh, understanding of racial identity, distancing it from the communal experiences and historical experiences of different groups, goes really well with neoliberalism because then it's easy to frame any kind of racial discrimination as probably just the wrong choice made by an individual. And that's really what emerged in the coverage of the housing crisis in places where people place the blame on people of color. So they ignored the evidence that uh, folks were actually steered into these bad loans, uh, redlined into these bad loans, and said, well, if you had only read the fine print, if you only were better educated about financial markets, uh, you wouldn't have had this problem. So this is about you not being a student, a, uh, uh, an apt student of the marketplace. That's what this is about. This isn't about uh, institutional racism. This is about individuals who made bad decisions about their finances or tried to game the system. So the at the same time though there's still this underlying presence of the stereotype of less intelligent people of color uh, less savvy people of color and assuming that most of the people of color who were steered into bad loans were of the lower classes when in fact uh, studies have shown that upper middle class African Americans and Latinos were steered into these bad loans uh, many more times over than white couples of their same income bracket. So, um, the, again, the post-racial vision is that race doesn't matter anymore, but it still ties itself to these tropes of, uh, of uh, stereotypes of people of color at the same time. Great. Well, thank you for linking that, making that connection or establishing that connection between post-racial and neoliberalism. It's oftentimes uh, that I find that those two concepts are analyzed independently. And I remember a reference in your article uh, sort of dis depicting many African Americans as financially illiterate. And I think that's one of the sort of negative stereotypes that emerged through that connection as well that uh, I thought was really exemplified what you were just describing. And so I'm, I'm just curious, we haven't really discussed the three specific uh, media outlets that you reference in your article, but I'm just curious to know if you see any potential for smaller ethnic media publications to challenge the neoliberal and post-racial discourse that you were just describing, um, in which sort of personal responsibility is emphasized uh, greater than the influence of the state, for example. And do you see potential for these smaller outlets to also challenge the uh, banks and other institutions that are uh, creating these f inaccurate depictions? Well, I do. And actually, here and there, I'm seeing some of the effects of actually two of the places that I investigated. So the three news outlets were Black Enterprise, which is a black-owned financial magazine and website, um, theroot.com, which is uh, an online news vehicle that was created by the Washington Post in response to um, 
people seeing a greater need for uh, more coverage of African-American opinion and issues, especially as the 2008 election was unrolling. Um, and then Color Lines, which is a publication and an online site supported by the Applied Research Center, which looks at issues, intersect intersectional issues of race, class, gender, and social justice. So, um, all of these, uh, all of these publications are are configured different ways economically. Black Enterprise, as the title suggests, is very interested in uh, in incubating and supporting black entrepreneurship. So it's much more oriented towards getting African Americans into the market game. But it also very much acknowledges the ways in which discrimination has kept African Americans out of corporate positions, et cetera, et cetera. At the same time, um, Black Enterprise was probably the most, or was the most, invested in this neoliberal logic in terms of blaming individuals for not being financially literate, even though uh, in some of its own articles recognizing that there was some malfeasance, right? Um, but the, the takeaway message was to, to solve this problem, African Americans have to regroup and get even more educated about finances and try and be as independent as possible. Um, the Root was more of a mix, and Color Lines, of course, um, was the most hopeful, as you can imagine, just because of their nonprofit status and their connection to the Applied Research Center, which is a very activist-oriented organization. And so they reflected a lot of the best elements of advocacy and investigative journalism and showcasing the stories of actual homeowners who were trying to push back through collective action with other people who were their allies or who had also been similarly um, bamboozled by uh, predatory lenders. The Root was more of a mix um, and did not have as much of a connection to community activism in terms of highlighting moments where communities were protesting or uh, trying to get changes in laws and things like that. So I was very hopeful, though, because some of the commentators and investigative journalists who work for Color Lines, their um, Twitter feeds, their Facebook links, as well as some of them as individuals, are being quoted in mainstream media and other outlets these days. And I think that's really a positive sign that... Um, in some of the self-serving ways that mainstream media are trying to be more diverse to respond to the demographic changes in the U.S., um, sites like these that are able to sustain themselves and uh, produce high-quality pieces and have uh, a pretty strong following by people uh, around the country, they're able to come sort of to the top of the heap and perhaps have an impact on the reporting or become uh, experts who are asked for quotations, these sorts of things um, can create some crossover between the more advocacy-focused journalistic outlets and the so-called mainstream journalistic outlets. So that does give me some hope, and their very astute critique of not only the policies but also the discourse about the crisis was very uh, was very edifying. Um, for me, 
And I, I hope that uh, with voices like uh, Melissa Harris-Perry, who now has her own platform on MSNBC, she often uh, works with the Applied Research Center folks. She spoke at their conference and so on and so forth. So sourcing, if we get more diverse sourcing from these kinds of media platforms, I think it could have the impact to change public conversation or at least challenge some of the dominant notions that often go unchallenged. Thank you. And yeah, it's very inspiring to see a lot of these um, socially activist uh, organizations picking up some mainstream attention, and I've, I've noticed that as well. Uh, so I'd like to conclude, Professor Squires, with giving you an opportunity to just share with the audience a little bit about your current research and future plans or expectations uh, since writing Coloring in the Bubble. Well, um, Coloring in the Bubble has gotten me thinking a bit more broadly about the way uh, discussions of housing and fairness have shifted over the past uh, hundred years, actually. So now that I'm finished with the book about the meaning of post-racial and how that gets reflected in media, I think my next project is going to be taking a longer look at how housing is defined and home is defined in the U.S. and how that intertwines with issues of policy and conceptualizations of race and gender and sexuality and class. Um, this, this whole issue of uh, home ownership being somehow central to being a good citizen, uh, to being a good financial steward, all of these things seem to be such taken-for-granted assumptions in many quarters. Um, you know, George Bush said he wanted to create an ownership society, and he actually pushed for more uh, Latino and black home ownership under his compassionate conservatism, um, even at the same time that the deregulated banks were taking advantage of these people. So um, this sort of disconnect between uh, what it means to have an ownership society and what it means to actually overcome the legacy of underdevelopment of communities of color so that people would have the capital to do so is pretty stunning. Um, also, just this idea that one should aspire to own a home at all costs, with, as if people who rent don't feel like they have a home or people who live with their family or extended family don't feel like they have a home. So it's a very, very um, troubling set of assumptions that are often underlaying these discussions of the housing crisis that I want to try and track and, and see where I can find alternatives because there really is no real um, affordable housing policy in the United States. And so... <laughs> cheap junk loans became the affordable housing policy de facto, you know, uh, affordable housing policy of the U.S. because they're, they're not thinking about renters as worthy uh, home dwellers. And that's just really shocking. And it's an anomaly, I think, for most of the world, this idea that, you know, either you're a homeowner or you just don't really count. Thank you for sharing that. Um, it's, 
a great way to conclude our, our conversation, and we look forward to uh, seeing more of your research uh, in the future. And so once again, Professor Catherine Squires is the first John and Elizabeth Bates Cowles Professor of Journalism, Diversity, and Equality at the University of Minnesota. She holds affiliations with the School of Journalism and Mass Communication, African American and African Studies, and Communication Studies. Her recent article, Coloring in the Bubble, Perspectives from Black-Oriented Media on the Latest Economic Disaster, can be found in the September 2012 issue of American Quarterly. Professor Squires, it's been a real honor and privilege to speak with you today, and I, I thank you for your time. Well, thank you so much for uh, asking me to do this interview. It's always great to have a little extra time to talk about the work. Mm-hmm.